the book of John, chapter 21, verses 15 to 19. This is what we're going to be looking at. Uh, so during, uh, during the semester in RUF, we have a lot of ways of, of being with students on campus. The primary thing that we do in RUF at Emory is what we call large group. It's a midweek meeting where we, we have worship, and I preach through a, a book of the Bible throughout the semester. Um, this semester, we've been going through the Gospel of John, and at the end of the semester, uh, as we come towards wintertime, we've finished this book, and uh, we've come to this section where Jesus has raised from the dead. He went to the cross for our sins. He died. He was buried. But he resurrected, and he begins appearing to his disciples, to his apostles, to friends, to family, uh, announcing his resurrection and what it means to us. And there's this interaction in some of his resurrection appearances that comes from John 21 that is really important to me. It's Jesus's conversation with Peter after he rose from the dead. So I'm going to read us this section and pray, and then we're going to look at it together. So this is John 21. I'm going to read verses 15 to 19. And remember, uh, Jesus has just risen from the dead. Peter's disciples, they have breakfast with Jesus on a beach. And then Jesus and Peter have this little one-on-one conversation, and that's what we're looking at here, starting in verse 15. When they had finished eating, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? Yes, Lord, he said, you know that I love you. Jesus said, feed my lambs. Again, Jesus said, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And he answered, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. Jesus said, take care of my sheep. The third time he said to him, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Now, Peter was hurt because Jesus asked him the third time, do you love me? And he said, Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. Jesus said, feed my sheep. Very truly, I tell you, when you were younger, you dressed yourself and went where you wanted. But when you are old, you will stretch out your hands, and someone will dress you and lead you where you do not want to go. Jesus said this to indicate the kind of death by which Peter would glorify God. And then he said to him, follow me. This is the word of the Lord. Let me pray. Jesus, thank you for these words. Thank you for your words to Peter, and thank you for the gift of inspiring John to write them down that we might hear them. God, as we look at them today and as, as, uh, as I preach, we ask that you would be present with us, that you would speak uh, through your word to each of our hearts, that we would be drawn more and more towards your love. Uh, God, uh, sometimes we come to church excited to grow and worship and hear and learn, and sometimes we come angry or tired or a mix of all of it. Sometimes we don't know why we're at church, uh, and some, for some of us, the sermon is the worst and scariest part of it all. God, we ask that you would be present with us with hope and encouragement as we hear your words today. In your name we pray, amen. So because I predominantly work with college students, uh, I, I like to put silly things into my sermons. I hope this is okay. Please forgive me if this is rude, Matt. But I'm going to begin with a quote from a TV show called The Office, um, and, a, and a character in The Office named Dwight Schrute. Dwight Schrute famously said this, 
When I was in the sixth grade, I was a finalist at our school spelling bee. It was me against Raj Patel, and I misspelled in front of the entire school the word failure. Um, I love that, and I love the scene in which you see it in Dwight's face when he, he knows the word that he's getting towards his failure. And it's funny because he misspells the word failure as a part of one of his greatest and most defining failures, that even into his adulthood, he remembers how he failed at spelling failure. Uh, I love that story. It's so funny. And uh, I can connect with immediately I watch that. And you might be like this. You can remember the things that, you, that happened to you in fifth, sixth, seventh grade in which you did something embarrassing in front of a lot of people. And even now, even after you have a job and friends and a car and you can like buy your own gas, like you remember that thing you did in sixth grade and you're like, man, I was such a nerd and I feel so embarrassed of myself. That failures, even the smallest and seemingly most insignificant ones, can stick with us for a long time. And they stick with us because we are deeply afraid that the failures that we exhibit are the most true thing about us. That we have, fa- we have stories of being failures because at the end of the day, we feel like we are failures. Um, in order for us to understand the power of what Jesus is saying to Peter here, and in order for us to, uh, to receive what that means for us, we do have to sit in an uncomfortable truth. And that is, while being a failure is probably not the most true thing about you, it might not even be something anybody ever notices about you. We all are failures. Most of the failures we might laugh about are the seemingly insignificant ones like failing to win a spelling bee. Um, But many of us have deeper failures. Failures that are not as easy to laugh about. Failures that make us uncomfortable when we remember them or think about them, and so we dare not even speak about them. Uh, Failures in work. Um, failures in school. I think I, I experienced this a lot. The test grade that means you will not go to medical school now. Um, failures in relationships. The thing you did which broke trust, which ended the relationship that you needed so deeply. Um, in a very real sense, we are all failures. And it is our failures that Jesus is speaking to and we, as we see him talk to Peter here. Now, let me, let me have a little uh, aside for a minute. I'm going to step aside. It's aside. A part of sanctification and growing in our faith, growing in knowing Jesus, is that uh, one of the, not only do we begin to see our sin, we also learn to distinguish between what feels like sin but isn't sin and what maybe doesn't feel like sin but is actual. When I, and so I want to just say that. When I say failures, I'm not meaning the things that you're not good at and things that cause you some sense of shame, like your failure to be tall enough or smart enough or cool enough or smart, like successful enough, those things are maybe failures to certain people. God does not ask you to repent of those things. Your limits and the things that make you not the best are like actually things that God really loves and admires and created in you, and those are a gift. And so when I talk about failures today, I'm talking about not those things and not even necessarily your pain or your, or your, or your fears, the things that, um, that you don't have control over that make you feel less than. 
I'm talking about the things we do, maybe even the things we do with our pain and with our fear that cause us to take a step into rebelling against God and wounding others. I'm talking about mistakes that we've made to love well. Um, the failures that, uh, that we not only feel silly about, but also maybe a little bit guilty for. I just wanted to say that because so often when we talk about failure, it might just sound like God thinks you're not good enough. But hear me that God thinks you are beautiful. God made you with delight, and he delights in you even in your failure. But the truth is that at some point in our lives or in every single day, at some point in your future, in your past, and in your present, you're going to do something or a whole habitual things uh, that are going to be sinning against God. And I want to talk about what Jesus does to you, what Jesus provides for us when we, when we like really fail big time. Because that is what's happening in this passage. Peter really failed big time. In fact, the last recorded conversation we have between Jesus and Peter and John is a, is, is a conversation when Jesus and Peter are at dinner, the Last Supper, with all the disciples, and everybody's there, and Peter says some, uh, some pretty brave things. He, uh, he's talking, about, talking to Jesus about how much he loves him, and he even goes as far to say to Jesus, Jesus, I love you more than any of these disciples here. All of them will turn their back on you, but not me. Man, I'm not going to do it. But, but what's funny is like Jesus' response to that is like, yeah, Peter, within the next 24 hours, you're going to turn your back on me three times. And I can't help but wonder, like as Peter protests against that, is maybe he's so defensive because a part of him believes like, oh, Jesus, that actually does sound like me. Because that's what happens. The last time that Jesus and Peter have seen each other, as far as we know, at least in the conversations that we have, was, uh, was that next day. After Peter has betrayed Jesus for the third time. You know, three times he denies that he even knows Jesus after Jesus got arrested. And there's this really hard moment where it says that the rooster crows and Peter looks across a courtyard and he and Jesus lock eyes with each other. Peter knows he failed. He knows that he was always going to fail. And he knows that Jesus knew that he was going to fail. And you can, can you imagine that moment where he doesn't just feel the guilt of having messed up, having betrayed Jesus, but also the shame of being like, how did he know I was going to be a person who did that? I can't believe I said that I loved Jesus more than all the other disciples. I'm like, can you imagine just the the shame that Peter must have felt because, honestly, like, it was all true. The sin in his heart was real, and, like, even he didn't know the half of it. And so moments before this meeting, Jesus, uh, Peter is on a boat with his buddies, and they're, they're fishing, and they see Jesus. It says that Peter throws himself into the water, probably to try to get to Jesus as fast as he can. But you can imagine that what he expected to happen uh, was the smackdown of the century. It's time for Peter to have his comeuppance. Like, like, Peter failed. Jesus knew he was going to do it. Peter was defensive. He did it anyway. And now, like, Jesus is about to, to let him know, I know you messed up. 
You know, it's time, to get, it's, it's time for his scolding. But what we see is not Jesus scolding him. We see something else entirely. We get a beautiful picture of what Jesus does to, fail, to failures, to people who fail. And what I want us to see is that it gives us a picture of what, we, of what I'm calling resurrection life. This is the life that we are called into to be Jesus' children. And it's just two quick things. Jesus forgives Peter, which means he forgives us. And Jesus offers resurrection to Peter, a new way of living. And he offers that to us too. How do we see Jesus forgive Peter? Because he never says, Peter, I forgive you for your sin. I think there's two quick ways in which we can see forgiveness. We tend to forgive with, with, uh, with words. We also forgive with deeds. And the very first thing that Jesus does with Peter is actually before this conversation. Um, Jesus says to him, come and have breakfast with me. And Jesus has already cooked it. It was probably cold. Peter was probably wet. Warm food, a blanket, and the gladness of a friend would have worked wonders for his shame. And we see Jesus providing care for Peter before he's ever even brought up what he did. It's not a, hey, Peter, let's talk about what you did, and then we're going to get together. It's like, no, come into my house. You know, sit down here, have this food with me. Jesus is, is, is enacting welcome as he welcomes Peter back into, his, into relationship with him. And then after that breakfast, he, he, he does this really interesting thing. He says... Simon, son of John, uh, so right there, he, you know, Peter is the nickname he gives him, but his name is actually Simon, and his, his father is John, and he says, Simon, son of John, he's talking to him like, he, he's recognizing, I know the truest thing about you. He's not saying, uh, cool you in your 30s who has it figured out, he's saying 14-year-old who just failed the spelling bee and wet her pants in school, I, I know who you are. Like, he's, he's saying, I know everything about you. And then he says, do you love me more than these? Which is kind of a weird phrase because Peter already said he did but proved he didn't. And Jesus is kind of saying, look, can we just call a spade a spade? I know you. And I'm asking you to know you too. I'm asking you to name the things about yourself that I already know about you. And then instead of beating over the head with all of the things he knows about him, he just says, do you love me? Peter says, yes. And he says, do you love me? And he says, yes. And then he says, do you love me? And Peter's a little frustrated. They asked him the third time, but then maybe it begins to make sense. Because three times Peter betrayed Jesus, and three times Jesus could have, turned, could have punished him, but instead three, three times Jesus gives Peter the opportunity to say, not only do I know you, and I know that your love is broken, I know that you do have broken love for me. And I want you to know that I accept even your broken love. And three times, Jesus carries Peter into saying it. This is forgiveness. He doesn't make Peter pay for his sins against him. He welcomes him back into relationship. And he actually gives him the opportunity to model repentance and repair without shame. So it's weird. This forgiveness is not, hey, you know what? You messed up. You, you sinned against me. You betrayed me. But I, like, let's just forgive and forget. It's not that. 
But it's also not, you sinned, you betrayed against me, now pay up so I can welcome you back. He takes his sin very seriously. He knows that betrayal, like really like breaking relationship is something that needs to be looked at with honesty. Like it actually, trust needs to be rebuilt. But at the same time, Jesus comes to him. He shows him love. He shows him welcome. He shows him forgiveness. And he, and he holds his hand as they rebuild trust again together. This is Jesus offering forgiveness to someone who, with bravado and excitement, betrayed him three times only a couple days before. And, I, like, that's the first thing we need to see is that, like, if Jesus can betray, I mean, if, if Jesus chooses not to punish Peter's betrayal, if he can forgive him, friends, he can certainly forgive us, and he does. Jesus, when he rises from the dead, announces a sword to your sin and a warm meal and a blanket to your broken heart. And he forgives you. Uh, there's a really famous quote from Abraham Kuyper where he says, uh, there's not a square inch of creation in which Jesus Christ doesn't say mine. And that's cool and true. But I'm thinking there's also not a square inch of your sin in which the risen Jesus doesn't look at and say, covered, forgiven, done. Yeah, man. I have to think about that all the time because I'm like, there are just some things I feel like, but he can't forgive that, right? But he can. In fact, he, not only can he, he does, and he did. And so the life that we are walking into is a life of actually saying there's, there's really not a single part that Jesus is not like, yeah, I forgive that, and I know you feel terrible about it, and I accept even your broken love. And that leads us to the second thing that Jesus offers, not just forgiveness, not just a clean slate, but something better. He offers resurrection life. Uh, has anyone seen the movie The Dark Knight Rises? It's a Batman movie. I'm going to spoil the ending for you. So if anybody has, like, waited 10 years and they haven't seen it, you can go. I'm going to give you a minute to leave the rooms or cover your ears. Um, the whole, like, the, the, the sort of MacGuffin in this movie, the thing that's getting everybody moving, is all these criminals are looking for this thing called the clean slate, which is this program that if they can get a hold of the clean slate, uh, they, can, they can expunge all their criminal records and all their financial debts from all over the world, and they will actually be clean. So you have this, like, crime syndicate is, uh, is looking for the clean slate, and you also have these kind of, like, underground bad guys who are also looking for the clean state as well. And the most famous one is this young woman who has a track record of, of mistakes, uh, and she goes by the name Catwoman. Um, and Catwoman is motivated by trying to find the clean slate because she has so much stuff in her past, and she will never have the life she wants unless she can get that stuff cleaned up. Uh, and there's this really phenomenal scene. Um, let me say, like, how relatable is this? Someone who's literally doing bad things because it's the only way, the only way they think they, that they can protect themselves. And that's what Catwoman is doing. But Batman knows it. And Batman knows what's going on. And so there's this really amazing scene where Batman runs into Catwoman and she's like going to try to kill him, but he stops her and he pulls out this USB, little zip drive, and he's like, I have it right here, the clean slate. And suddenly it dawns on her, I have to do whatever he says for him to give that to me. And you know what he does? He hands it to her. And then she takes it. And then he asks her to do something. He asks her to help him, like, save Gotham City. We won't get into details, but it's awesome. Uh, 
But she's so struck, and she's like, but why would I do that? You've already given me everything I need. I can just walk away right now. And Batman's like, yes, you can. And then Batman leaves. And she can just walk away with the clean slate, but she doesn't. She actually comes back and helps Batman, even though she doesn't need to. Why? Because he loved her. He gave her what she wanted, but he drew her into more than what she wanted, what she actually needed. She needed more than a clean slate. She wanted a clean slate because she thinks that's the only way that she could have life and have it abundantly. But instead, he offers her the clean slate, and then he's offering her something else, trust and welcome. And he asks her to do something with no strings attached. And in the very last scene of the movie, we find out that Batman and Catwoman are married and living in Italy. <laughs> uh, which is super weird, and like, the message boards were so angry. Like, don't ask Reddit about how the end of that, that movie ended. They'll be mad. But I love that so much because this is what Jesus, Jesus offers you a clean slate, no strings attached. You don't have to do anything to have your sins forgiven. But Jesus wants more for you than just your sins forgiven. He's actually calling you into a way of living. And I think we see that in what, in what Jesus is doing with Peter here. Because three times Peter says, yes, Jesus, I love you. And you know what Jesus says? Feed my sheep. Tend my lambs. You see, Peter was not just called to be one of Jesus' disciples. He was also called to plant churches, to lead ministries, to serve people. And guess what this proves? That he was not qualified or fit to do that. He was not. That's probably why he went back to fishing that day. Because the, he failed in the thing that, that the Lord had called him to do. He realized, I'm never going to be good enough to do that or be that. That's not going to be my life. I'm going to go back into obscurity and shame. What's Jesus doing here? He's giving Peter his job back. The job that he's not fit for. The job that he's not qualified for. The job that he totally just threw in the trash can when he failed Jesus. And yet Jesus gives it back to him. Why? Because in the resurrection life that Jesus calls us into... Failure does not disqualify us. And we can look at the other way. Excellence, success, efficiency, competences, those things do not qualify us. Being a good moral person does not qualify you to flourishing relationship with Jesus. What does? Jesus' love for you. So now failure actually doesn't destroy you. Failure doesn't disqualify you. The sin that you don't want to name doesn't actually ruin you, even though it has all the ability to ruin you. It doesn't. Because Jesus always, always, always forgives and welcomes you back into relationship. The thing that actually qualifies you is what we see Jesus teaching Peter to do. Peter, do you love me? With a broken, conflicted, messed up, trying sometimes love. Peter's like, yeah, that's all I got. And Jesus is like, that, that's all it takes. There's that famous hymn that says, uh, all that he requires is that we feel our need of him. P 
Peter feels his need of Jesus right now, and Jesus is like, yeah, and you have me. So friends, this is resurrection life. It's more than just a clean slate. It's more than just getting into heaven because you don't have sin. It's life made new. It's life in which you can fail and you can't be destroyed. It's life where you can fail forward, which some people say, and I think that's really beautiful. Uh, that you, like, you have the freedom to fail because your performance does not determine your participation. Can you imagine a life in this where like, your failures, your sinfulness, your proclivities to sin are, uh, are not just forgiven, but they're known beforehand? They're assumed? They're assu- like God assumes that you're full of it, right? But, you, but even a person who's full of it can, can enjoy the shalom of being in a relationship with God because it's actually God's love for you that qualifies you. That means that the thing you're most afraid about yourself can be true. That means you can be canceled. That means you can publicly apologize and look weak or sinful. Like, that means you don't have to be perfect or have it all together. That means everybody can know and find out. Because these things don't destroy you anymore. You are Jesus' own. Um, <clears throat> okay. Well, the last few minutes, I just want to kind of do a so what. what. So what? What can we do with this? Here's some practical takeaways. One is this, and I have to think about this. This one is really big for me because I don't do this very well. So I feel a little bit even guilty now telling it to you. Like, do this thing that I really stink at. Let Jesus tell you who you are and not your failures. Man, uh, I just love to be stuck in the habit of like, when I think of who I am, I think of all the things that I've done that I'm ashamed of. And I want people to know those things so they know that even at my best, you can't always depend on me. You definitely won't be impressed with me. And I'm already afraid I'm going to hurt you. And, uh, and Jesus tells me, yes, and I love you. You can, and, and you're, uh, guys, let Jesus tell you who you are, not your own. I don't have this illustration written down, but I'm just reminded of this. Uh, I had a friend, and when he got married, uh, it was really hard, his first year of marriage. Like, who can relate to that? Uh, <laughs> And I remember, I hadn't been, I wasn't married yet, so I didn't know anything about marriage. Uh, but he, he called, he'd been married for like six months, and he calls me, and they just had, he and his wife had just had this fight where he felt like such a jerk, because it was like, we fought for five hours, and at hour five, I suddenly realized, oh my goodness, this is all my fault. She's right, and I'm wrong. Um, and uh, he, he was like, and I just felt so overwhelmed with shame that I brought all this pain and destruction and sadness and grief into her life, like, like, and now, and I was like, man, well, what do you want to do? And he was like, I want to get in my car, I want to drive to Canada, and I never want to see her again. And I thought it was because he was mad at her, but you know why? It's because he was mad at himself. He was like, she will be so much happier if I live in a different country and she doesn't have to look at me anymore. Um, her life will be so much better without me. And I am so scared of what that means for her, for my friends, 
for my kids if we ever have any. Like, I'm going to get in my car and go to Canada, and the best thing I can do is never be seen again. Who's felt that way? I felt that way. You don't have to put your hands up. Come on. <laughs> like, I, was, I wasn't married at the time, but now that I'm married, I'm like, how long would it take me to get to Canada? Uh, Man, I, I say that because, like, so often our, our, our sins just make us feel like this is who we are and there's no hope for us. And it's kind of shocking that the Jesus who says, you are loved, you are mine, feed my sheep, tend my lambs, I forgive you, have breakfast, is the, like, Jesus already knew everything that you're just finding out about yourself. So let Jesus tell you who you are. You're his child. And it's a gift to know you. It's weird that the Bible talks a lot about us worshiping God, and, that's, and yet somehow it talks about that that's a blessing to him. Like, we actually delight God's heart. Zephaniah says God sings and dances over us. Uh, he sings and dances over the you that you're just figuring out that you are. Let Jesus tell you who you are, not your failures. Uh, and the second thing, and, and I'll close with this, practice confessing your sin specifically and honestly to trusted friends. Practice saying the things out loud to someone who loves you. And there's two reasons for this. That, I mean, there's a million reasons, but two that stick to mind is one is uh, it just puts flesh on it. You know, we say that Jesus forgives you of sins, but being able to confess, that, to like confess them specifically out loud to someone, you're like, oh, Jesus forgives this. Jesus loves me who does this. And the practice of confessing sin, we don't do it so that, you know, God doesn't forgive it until you say out loud. We don't do it for that reason. We do it because it reminds us and it forms us as people who are like, these are the specific things that Jesus forgives and these are the, thing, these are the ways in which I will let my failures define me and I will let them lead me into eventually walking away from, like, practice confessing sin specifically and honestly to trusted friends because it puts flesh on Jesus' forgiveness for you. And the second reason is this. As you begin to be honest about yourself to your friends, it will make you someone who actually is safer to have your friends be honest to you. And it is in the communion of actually sharing our sinfulness with each other, our brokenness with each other, that we actually get to say the words that we say on Sunday so often, like, there is no condemnation for you in Christ Jesus. And as we specifically name our sins to our friends, we actually know each other better. And we can love each other with the love that Jesus gives to us. Um, I was at a wedding a long time ago, and I remember someone standing up and giving a toast, and they, they were talking to the, to the groom, and they said, I, I sometimes know Jesus loves me only because of the way that you have loved me. And Jesus loves through a myriad of ways, but through the honest, kind friendship of people close to you, you can really feel and hear Jesus putting a blanket around you and saying to you, I forgive you, I know you, and I restore you. And that's why, like, don't just remember in your heart that Jesus loves you. Practice confessing sin to your friends, and you will practice enjoying Jesus' love together. Um... <clears throat> Friends, uh, we're going to come to the table in just a few minutes, and we're going to remember and proclaim and experience Jesus' love on the cross for us again. Uh, he has called us into a life not just of forgiveness of sins, but to, to a renewal of life, to a life of the freedom to fail, 
the freedom to try, the freedom to love, uh, because you are wrapped up in the blanket of Jesus' love always. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you for uh, going to the cross for our sins and offering us this new sort of life. Um, Help us to remember it and practice it. Uh, But most of all, God, give us your presence when we don't remember it at all. In your name we pray, amen.